So the real uh, point of this theme for this retreat is to begin a lifelong reflection on the presence of faith and to be careful that faith just uh, doesn't just become another thing to judge ourselves with, like, oh, I have so little faith, I have so much doubt. And we can easily turn it into something, you know, I need to get some faith, as opposed to uh, an understanding that the faith is here. It just needs to be uncovered. One definition of faith, I think literally it, uh, the word sadda, the Pali word, means to place, your, to place our heart upon something. But maybe a more practical definition is um, it's the, the force that allows us to, to take the next step. In one particular sutta, the Buddha described faith as the seed of his awakening. He was uh, this very interesting little interaction. I can't remember, I can't paraphrase the sutta, but the Buddha was collecting alms and uh, there was a very successful farmer and he, you know, went with his bowl and the farmer said something like, you know, well, we work for our living here. What do you do for your living? And I forget exactly what the Buddha said, but basically he he made a statement to the effect that he also works for his living, <laughs> for his food. And then he went in describing his whole kind of work as a teacher, as a Buddha, um, in terms of, in sort of agricultural terms. And the last thing he says, and this my seed, you know, your seed is wheat or whatever. My seed is faith. That's the seed of a Buddha or of a, uh, a good teacher is faith. So we can break um, faith down into three categories. There's inspired faith, where we just hear something and it inspires us, like we're, it's not, you know, we're, we could easily get uh, distracted, but there's a charge with that initial hearing, sometimes quite a powerful charge. And some of you know, hopefully some of you know, if you don't, you should know, this nice little book by Sharon Salzberg called Faith. And uh, in this book, she tells her story, which is, uh, her personal story is pretty dramatic. I forget exactly how old she was when her mother died right there, pretty much in front of her. And her father was also uh, institutionalized with uh, mental illness. And she had a couple other bad events in her upbringing. And then at some point, she took a course. She somehow got into college at a very young age, like she was 16 or 17, and uh, like SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo. And uh, she, sophomore year, I think, took a course on Buddhism. And she came across this basic teaching of the Buddha, which is something like, I teach one thing and only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. I always used to think, well, that sounds like two things. <laughs> but actually, it's not. I mean, it's like his teaching on suffering, it's like in understanding suffering, we understand the end of it. It's like suffering exists exists because we don't understand it. It's the not understanding of suffering that makes it suffering. 
And it's the understanding of suffering that leads to freedom. So I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And for somebody who had a lot of suffering in her life and a lot of confusion in her mind and self-doubt, self-hatred, this was like a real invitation. Let me just read a little bit from her book. One of my favorite stories is in this early section of this book. So she first, uh, early in this book, she talks about the Buddha's um, awakening and how, you know, when the Buddha was under the, the Bodhi tree after years of different practices and including some very severe ascetic practices, then he realized that wasn't the way. He had an insight that, that it wasn't appropriate to somehow seek liberation by denying existence, basically denying human existence and the needs of the human life. So he found a more middle, moderate path and eventually his strength increased and he made this resolution to sit that he felt like this is the time he was ready and he made this resolution and of course as soon as he made that resolution to sit until he understood what needed to be understood he had doubt and in, in the Buddhist tradition doubt always arises as Mara the evil one the killer of virtue and when we get attached to our the force of doubt or the force of aversion or the force of greed in the mind then Mara can do what he wants with us, <laughs> which is the truth. So Mara attacks the Buddha in all kinds of different ways, you know. And the most potent attack, it's kind of interesting, the most potent attack Mara has against the Buddha is um, to question his right to be sitting there. Basically, to bring up some self-doubt. Like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to think that you're close to awakening, that you're not caught in life being a human being. Let me just read a little bit. In essence, Mara said, who do you think you are to be sitting there with that immense aspiration? What makes you think you can actually be enlightened? In response to that challenge, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, reached his hand down and touched the earth, asking it to bear witness to all the lifetimes in which he had practiced generosity, morality, loving-kindness, and wisdom. He asked the earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there, his right to aspire to full understanding and infinite compassion. As the legend goes, when the Bodhisattva touched the ground, the earth shook, testifying to his right to be free. With that, Mara was vanquished and fled. The Bodhisattva sat through the night, uh, through the rest of the night in deep meditation, and with the arising of the first morning star was enlightened. In this story is the Buddhist promise that freeing the mind from the habits of anguish and fear is a real and attainable goal, not just for him, not just for a few others, but for everyone who makes the effort. 
that that all beings want to be happy and in fact deserve to be happy is emblazoned throughout. And this means everybody. And one of the nice things about the stories from the time of the Buddha is that they really make this point. One thing I read not too long ago, some of you know, Moggallana was the Buddha's chief disciple with um, Sariputta. They were the two chief disciples. So it's like pretty high honor. And uh, But it said that Moggallana was Mara 37 times in his previous life. So that so those of us in kind of a Judeo-Christian tradition, that means being Satan 37 times round. <laughs> so now just think about the negative karma that Mara creates. Because Mara, as a, as a celestial being, lives a long time <laughs> and, and is basically responsible for all the delusion, all the force of greed and aversion throughout the, all the realms of existence for all beings for a long time. That's one existence. And then to do that 37 times, you collect a lot of bad karma. But even <laughs> Moggallana, you know, was able to overcome it. And another uh, kind of potent example is Agulimala, another character from the time of the Buddha who was a mass murderer. had killed 999 or something like that people. And he needed to kill a thousand for some, it's just a long involved story, which is also very interesting. If, you're, if you want to read a fun book, let me know, I'll tell you. There's a great book about this part of the, the, Buddha, the Buddha's discourses um, that's been sort of fictionalized uh, by a Danish man around the turn of the, uh, around 1901 or something, he wrote it. And I think he won, he, he was a well-known author, but anyway, he got interested in Buddhism later in his life and wrote this book. And Ajahn Armo had it translated and re-edited it, so it's available. It's called The Pilgrim Kalamita, I believe. And uh, you should be able to order it from the Abhayagiri website. But anyway, it's in part, that book is about Agulimala. And even though, and so he was about to kill his mother, because he was the only person, he made a vow to kill the next person he saw, and it was his mother. And at that point, the Buddha kind of knew what was about to happen psychically and, and went off and uh, made Agulimala a student of his. And in a short while, Agulimala became free. His mind became free of the force of greed, anger, and delusion. So this says something about this path that no matter how much unskillful karma, like how much unfinished business is behind our conditioned personality, awakening is available to us. And the image, uh, the image Sharon uses somewhere in here is like, you know, we sometimes as a kid, we'd look into the store window or the bakery window knowing that we don't have any money and my parents aren't going to buy me anything. So there's a real, like, this is not for me. But that's not the, that's not how the Buddha taught. And, you know, uh, there was a very strong caste system at the time in Buddha and at the time of the Buddha's life. And uh, that, of course... The Buddha was very clear. It didn't matter who you, the sort of, he, he said something like, the caste is dependent on your character, not where you were born, who you were born from. So the possibility for awakening is how we relate to our conditioned life or conditioned personality or con conditions, the circumstances of our life, 
not what our personality is. And that's what's so interesting about going on retreats or even going to monasteries. You see so many different characters, like in this room. I mean, <laughs> we're all nice people, but we all, we're, we're pretty different in terms of, you know, our education, in terms of our interests, in terms of our backgrounds. Uh, we talked about Stephen Levine last night. I read something from him. and uh, uh, It's interesting. His son, Noah Levine, is now a well-known teacher. and uh, But he was evidently uh, difficult to handle as a young, as a boy, um, and really got into the punk scene in a big way. And, you know, uh, anyway, just struggled. But, you know, to whatever means, found the teachings and really transformed his life. And now, be, probably in part because of his background, is a really potent teacher. He has a book uh, that I'm told is really good, although I haven't read it. Um, Dharma Punk or Dharma Punks. Anybody read that? Evidently, it's really good. And then here's a story I really like uh, that I think talks about inspired faith. So, you know, Sharon, here's takes this course in Buddhism, gets inspired. So then, at, uh, instead of her going back for her junior year, decides to go to India. So she's only 18 years old now, has a troubled background, and just decides, I'm going to go to India to learn meditation. She's so inspired by this basic teaching that the Buddha teaches suffering in the end of suffering, or an invitation to the end of suffering. It just seemed like nobody else in the world, nowhere where she looked, was someone saying, Here's the end of suffering. All you have to do is practice. All you have to do is do this practice. And you will find the end of suffering. And it was like, uh, too good to be true. And then, through this amazing set of circumstances, shortly before she left, as she was sort of making plans to leave, on his first trip to the United States, Trungpa Rinpoche, who later became a very well-known teacher in the West, was a young uh, Tibetan Lama, uh, abbot of several monasteries in Tibet before he fled with a bunch of other people to India and then eventually went to Oxford and eventually landed in the United States and has set up a number of institutions which continue today. And anyway, he was taking his first tour. There he was in, in Buffalo, New York, giving a Dharma talk. And you could uh, write written questions that he would answer after his talk. And Sharon's question was, I'm going to India to practice meditation. <laughs> what do you, who do you recommend I practice with? Or what do you recommend I do? And lo and behold, her question was the first to come up. And uh, <laughs> this is just great. <laughs> Mine happened to be the first piece of paper he picked out of the huge stack in front of him. Trimpa Rinpoche read the question aloud. In a few days, I'm leaving for India to study Buddhism. Do you have any recommendations as where I should go? He was silent for a few moments. Then in his precise British accent, he replied, In this matter, you had better, I'm sorry, in this matter, you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. That was it. No names or addresses, no maps, no directions. And... You know, this is what it's like when we're inspired. You know, we just, 
we, it's like everything becomes our teacher when we have some inspiration. It's like the bird is our teacher. Some people mentioned that the other day. You know, the call of the bird can be our teacher, or a particular person, or a particular difficult situation in our life can be our teacher, if we're inspired. And then after inspired faith, you know, it ins- uh, inspired faith, faith inspires us basically to verify it, to do some kind of practice. So. Inspired faith is when we hear something from the outside or see something that inspires us. And then it becomes verified faith when we actually do something and we see some some effect from that doing. You know, like we sit down. Like I mentioned the other night, you know, when I was living in Berkeley with my friend who also meditated. And just one night, my mind really quieted down. And that really increased my faith, just to see the mind quiet down. And then, of course, realized faith goes even deeper, like for the Buddha that night under the Bodhi tree, when we not just get some results, but we understand the whole path. And the there's some really uh, interesting suttas where the, the Buddha talks about this unshakable faith, where we see we understand the path. So we have to remember that verified faith, where most of us are a lot of the time in our practice, we don't even really understand the whole nature of the path. We're still a little bit like wandering in the dark, but we know that there's something here. We trust this something here. But we, we just have a vague sense of the outlines. We don't know where it's leading. So if it feels like a bit of a mystery to you when someone talks about the unconditioned, that's good. It just means you're being honest with yourselves. Because it is mysterious. We don't have the unshakable faith. We don't have the uh, realized faith in a deep way. There's a particular sutta in uh, Majjhimakaya, the middle length discourses, where the Buddha is uh, discussing this, the different kinds of faith, and just how it all works. And I mentioned it briefly the other night, how the Buddha says there are two things, there are five things that may turn out in two different ways, here and now. What five? And so he says the first one is faith, meaning we can have faith, Something can be accepted out of faith, but it may not be true, or it might be true, right? Sometimes we have faith in something that's true, and sometimes we have faith in something that's not true. So he says, if a person has faith, he or she preserves truth. When she says, my faith is is thus, but she does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. So it's not absolute faith or realized faith. We just have faith to kind of continue to look. And this is the same with approval, like something that's been approved by a lot of people. A lot of things are approved by a lot of people that are true, and some things are approved by a lot of people that aren't good, right? And the next one is oral tradition. Like there's some traditions 
and what those long time traditions say are really useful. And some of them aren't useful. They're not true. They're not, they don't really speak the truth, those old traditions. Reason consideration is the next, and reflection is the fifth. So even something that we reflect on, and so we're, we're starting to take what we have faith in or what somebody has told us or what the tradition says, and we're reflecting on it based on our experience. Even then, just because there seems to be a correlation you know, between what we're being told or what we believe in and what we see, even then we could be wrong. We could be being misled. So we don't want to come to a definite conclusion. And in this way, the Buddha says, we preserve the truth. We don't destroy it by not coming, not sort of overstating our faith. And this is really important in Buddhism because, as I'm sure you understand, Buddhism depends on empirical, in, what's the word, empirical, no, but what's the noun? Empiricism. Is that how you say it? Empiricism? So it really depends on, like, using the mind directly to see things as they are. So we have to balance that with the force, the power of faith to, like, step into the unknown. Like to hear something that sounds reasonable or that doesn't even sound reasonable, but somebody who seems reasonable is saying it, right? And so we need to check it out. So that's the force of faith. But that has to be balanced by our direct experience. And it's really the two together. And if it gets out of balance, then we get into trouble. Like if we don't have any faith, we're not going to bother we're not going to learn anything because it's faith that allows us to step into the unknown. One beautiful image is, I think Arjun Amaro used, and it, it's related to the similes used in the suttas about crossing the stream or crossing the flood. And he uses the images of cows and how the big cows go first. And then once they get across, the mother cows uh, make that sound, you know, calling the little babies across. The little babies don't want to go across. But they've seen, you know, the mothers and the, uh, the other cows get across, and they hear that voice, you know, which is basically saying, there's no other way, honey. <laughs> if you want this milk, <laughs> got to cross the stream. <laughs> and they do, you know, even though they don't believe that they can. So we have to... Um, so we preserve the truth by not coming to any definite conclusion until we really do it. So then the person asks the Buddha, in what way is there a discovery of truth? So we go from verify to realize truth. How does that happen? And the Buddha, in his very, you know, his, his usual way, spells it out in great detail. The first thing he says, you know, a teacher may be living in some village or town. A person goes to her or him and investigates this person with regard to three states, delusion, aversion, and greed, right? Do I see this person under the influence of delusion, um, greed, or aversion? And if so, is it affecting what they say in a way that might lead to my harm, not to my benefit? So you have to really check it out. And that not just means me, but just even, you know, so much of what we use as teachings come from a number of teachers. And so it's a little tricky for us 
but even so, we have to be careful. You know, we see the Dalai Lama in his beautiful robes and uh, sitting on his throne, as they often do, he often does when he's doing public programs, you know, and getting the kind of press that he gets. And it's just, it's easy just to assume he's a great person. But, but we have to, we don't have realized faith. We haven't actually sort of washed the Dalai Lama in difficult circumstances to see if he gets angry or to see if he's greedy or how he relates to that, or whether that those forces in his mind affect how he teaches. We don't know, and we have to admit that about all the different teachers that we work with. But this is what the Buddha says first. We need to investigate because without investigation, we won't have faith, and without faith, we won't be respectful for what the person's saying. And without respecting what the person has to say, we won't give them an ear, as the Buddha says. And if we don't give them an ear, we won't hear what they have to say. And if we don't hear what they have to say, we won't memorize it. Because back then, you know, you had to memorize things because they weren't written down. And you didn't have your little digital recorders <laughs> or the Internet where you could download the talks. And if you didn't memorize it, you wouldn't be able to examine the meaning in your mind, like reflect on it later. And if you didn't memorize it, you couldn't reflect on the meaning and then you couldn't reflect. And if you can't reflect, there's no zeal. So when we reflect, it means, you know, because we've memorized it and we can really think about it, and then when we think about it, we're able to apply it to our personal circumstance. So that's the reflection where we're taking the meaning and we're seeing its parallel in our experience. And then zeal arises from that. It's like we get excited, in a sense, like, my God, this really fits. What this person is saying really fits what's actually going on in my mind. It actually helps to illuminate what's going on for me. And that, that gets us excited, which helps us apply our will. That's the next one. Applying our will, making effort, helps us to scrutinize or investigate more deeply what this person's saying and the implications of what this person's saying. And that leads to striving or a wholehearted commitment, so like a not forgetting, like uh, basically living by this teaching, living according to this teaching or integrating this teaching into our life, and that leads to insight or wisdom. This leads to the discovery of truth. This is what the Buddhist answer is to the, how do you actually have a moment of discovery? And then the Buddha says, just in case you thought you were done, and the Buddha says, in this way, there is a discovery of truth. But as yet, there is no final arrival at truth. The final arrival at truth lies in the repetition, development, and cultivation of these same things. And then the person asks, what is most helpful for the final arrival at truth? And the Buddha goes through the same list and, and backwards now. He says, striving is the most important thing. Now, in the West, when we hear striving, we often think of it in an unskillful way. So this is like a wholehearted integration commitment to living out the teaching that you verified through your reflection. So that's what that means. And then he goes, that's what's most important. But to do that, you need scrutiny. And to, to scrutinize, you need to apply skillful effort. And to be able to do that, you need zeal. And to have zeal, you need to have reflected on these teachings 
based on your own experience. And to do that, you need to examine the meaning, and you have to have memorized it to examine the meaning, and you have had to hear it in order to memorize it, and on and on, back to the seed of faith. And that's how we arrive, the final arrival at truth. That's just the Buddhist way of talking about inspiration, verification, and realization. So we can... Uh, I'd like to spend the rest of the evening talking about um, what the Buddha actually, you know, if if we do have faith in the Buddha and we're willing to lend our ear, what does the Buddha say so that we can memorize it and we can reflect on it and we can feel that zeal from how it makes sense, like how it really illuminates our life. There's a nice um, talk that Ajahn Jayasaro gave. He's a well-known uh, teacher, Buddhist monk in the Ajahn Chah, the Western Ajahn Chah tradition, was the abbot of Wat Panada Chat in uh, Thailand, the international monastery in Thailand that Ajahn Sumedho set up a, a while back. He says, faith has been an unpopular word in some Western Buddhist circles, especially with those people who have felt bitter about their theistic upbringing. And seen in Buddhism, some, and seen in Buddhism, and seen in Buddhism something more scientific. I misread that. <laughs> who felt bitter about their theistic upbringing and seen in Buddhism something more scientific. I like the word faith and find confidence, the other popular translation for the Pali, sada, too mundane. But however this term is rendered into English, we must first acknowledge that we can't do without it. Nobody can prove that there is such a thing as enlightenment. And so if we don't have faith that there is, our practice is unlikely to go very far. Faith clarifies the goal, focuses our efforts, and fills us with energy. Ultimately, it is wisdom rather than faith that moves mountains, but it is faith that impels us to move them in the first place, and faith that sustains us through all the inevitable frustrations that dog our efforts. With the faith that the Buddha was fully enlightened and the trust that the teachings he shared for 45 years are true, it follows that each one of us, wherever we're from, whether, wherever we're born, whatever language we speak, man, woman, old or young, we all bear within us this capacity to realize the truth. Human beings can attain awakening, can realize Nibbana. We're fish in the water of truth. Why shouldn't fish be able to understand what water is? It's all around us. It's all within us. All we have to do is learn how to open our eyes. So one of the first things that the Buddha might say or any wise teacher might say to us is something to the effect of the importance of humility. You know, there's so many 
stories about, you know, the teacher pouring water into a glass that's already full to teach the student that I can't teach you anything when you think you already know something. And the Buddha, in his own way, taught, you know, he said this too. Remember that before he went off to practice as a monk, as an ascetic, he just had this realization that, you know, here I am, uh, an impermanent being, subject to birth, aging, and death, living my life in search of other things that are also subject to birth, aging, and death. You know, everything he was searching for in his life as a prince were all in constant and permanent things. And it just struck him, but this doesn't make sense. I, being impermanent, deciding to depend on other things that are impermanent. What kind of satisfaction, what kind of safety is that? And he came to a reasonable conclusion, not much. And then he thought, well, even though he didn't have the answer, right? He didn't have the answer at this point, but he knew one thing. He knew it didn't make a lot of sense to be, de uh, to be dependent on things that were not dependable. And he said something like, well, how about I, who is subject to birth, aging, and death, sickness and death, uh, look for something that isn't inconstant, something outside of this world of things that come and go, not knowing whether it was there or not, but knowing that living a life of dependence on things in the world that come and go was limited at best, and probably more than limited. It was, it was in its very nature frustrating to do that, which is what the exact same thing that draws us to search too. Because we wouldn't come on this retreat if we thought the things of the world were uh, providing us the safety, the happiness we thought we want, we think we want. So this humility or this not knowing, it's really about it's the path. It's this idea that we're embarking on something and we don't know where it leads. Like Sharon as an 18-year-old, you know, going to India, not knowing who she's going to end up with as a teacher. I mean, she was probably, I can only guess how naive she was about what she was getting into. But, you know, it worked out. It worked out. And if she didn't do that, it wouldn't have worked out, at least not in this way. So we have to embark. We have to take a step into the unknown. And this is the path. We have to be willing to be a beginner, which, of course, isn't so easy. I'll read a little bit more from Jaya Saro. No matter how much money people have and how well endowed, they are with worldly blessings. Whether they go, they are still stuck fast within the realm of the senses. No matter how exalted an aesthetic experience, nobody is ever going to be able to see with their eyes anything other than a form that arises and passes away. Not one of our sense impressions can be sustained and enjoyed for an indefinite length of time. Racing around, struggling and striving to experience more forms, more sounds, more smells, more flavors, 
more physical sensations, more emotions, more thoughts, more ideas, starts to appear tiresome. Is this really a satisfactory way to spend a human existence? Prince Siddhartha and countless men and women after him have started their spiritual quest with the conviction that there, may, there must be something more to life. I think it's important not to underestimate what an insight this is, you know, that we don't know, or what we know is this isn't it, and that's it, and that that's really potent. That's not uh, something to, to dismiss. So like a, a growing dissatisfaction with the things of the world, not that we hate the world or we think it's bad, but just understanding the limitations of it, even really wholesome things, understanding the limitations of it. I see this even in my relationship with Wynne, which I, I really value and I'm so grateful for. But I, I see it both in her and in me and in us together, just the limitations of the interactions. When we're just sort of who we are in a conventional sense, that, that, uh, that to somehow base my life on this relationship isn't the answer as wholesome as it is. And we have to be always willing to step, not to feel like we're there yet. This is Joseph Goldstein. Faith means trusting the unfolding process of, of our lives. It is a willingness to let go of the fears and attachments and open ourselves to the unknown in each new mo moment. And then the way we do this, really the next basic teaching the Buddha would give, first, you know, the, the importance of humility that we don't know. And then he would teach karma. He would teach that intentions make a difference. Skillful intentions lead to skillful fruit. Unskillful intentions lead to unskillful fruit. One of the most repeated statements of the Buddha is, help others when you can, don't harm other living beings, and purify the mind, which is a, a basic statement of karma. And this is where all of us have been verifying the teachings of the Buddha, because we hear this, you know, that intentions matter, and then we learn, you know, we're given these tools like to pay attention, to watch the mind, and then we begin to see very clearly how we're relating to the present moment has a real effect on how our life unfolds. And that's the verification. That really helps us become more confident, trusting in the Buddhist teachings. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it's such a practical teaching. I mean, it really works immediately to benefit our lives. When we start paying attention on the level of intention, of the intentions in the mind, and really see that certain intentions, when acted out, create hell on earth. And other intentions, when acted out, create heaven on earth. And this is a, such a step in the direction of freedom and liberation in, a, in the most practical way. So many ways the Buddha talked about this. I'll just read a couple quotes. That which is the exhaustion of lust, of hate, of delusion, is called Nibbana. 
that one should make an end of suffering, an end to suffering, without making an end to greed, aversion, and ignorance, this is impossible. So, the Buddha gives us this teaching, and then, because we've been listening to it, then we reflect on it. That means we use our awareness practice to reflect on this truth. Whether when greed, anger, and delusion are pronounced, and we're identified with those forces, and we suffer, then we kind of confirm, oh yeah. And when it, the other way, when we see the non-greed, the non-aversion, the non-delusion, and we see how life works well, how peace arises, harmony arises, then we confirm the Buddhist teachings. We basically realize the truth of the Buddhist teachings. Last night I talked a lot about this next part of the teaching, which is the path of non-clinging, or the teaching on non-clinging. Or last night I called it teaching on the nature of the mind. So once once the people had some um, basic faith in what the Buddha was teaching, then he would he would start teaching the deeper teachings. So he would start with teachings that just helped create some harmony in people's lives, like be generous, be kind, don't hurt other people. And then people stabilized their lives. Then he would teach them more subtly about karma, about the power of intention, and to really look at the roots of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. And then when people got skilled at that level and they had a deeper stability in their mind and their lives, then he would he would tell them to notice how even that stance of being the person who is skillful and the person who's avoiding being unskillful, even that stance itself is stressful. It's a burden. It's a burden to have to be careful to be skillful and careful to avoid being unskillful. And so he would, he would basically start teaching about a greater kind of renunciation, renouncing all attachments, all identifications. And this is really a pointing out at the nature of the mind, that, that the nature, the essence of the mind is a mind or heart of non-clinging or non-attachment. Guy Armstrong, one of the Spirit Rock teacher, says it this way, we begin to find out what we are, not just what we're not. So we begin to have a sense of the nature of the mind behind all of our conditioned habits. And the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. Not clinging to any of the appearances in the mind, even the skillful ones. And there's a wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, that so many people got started by reading, got started with the practice by reading. I certainly did. It's one of my first books. I discovered, this is from his book, I discovered that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. That is, we have to believe in something that has no form and no color something which exists before all forms and colors appear. 
This is a very important point. So it is absolutely necessary for everyone to believe in nothing. But I, but I do not mean voidness. There is something, but that something is something which is always prepared for taking some particular form or color. So it's just his way of talking about the nature of the mind or the common factor behind all of what arises in our life in terms of our six sense gates in the mind and through the five physical senses. What's behind all of that? So we can't know it like a sound. We can't know it like a thought or an image in the mind. But it doesn't make it not real. It just means that it can't be known in the way that we know sounds or thoughts. But it can be realized. So this is just a summary, you know, of the path that the Buddha might teach. Somehow, uh, a kind of humility, an openness, and then the teaching of karma, both first in a, in a real gross way, like if you're generous, you'll get to heaven. Really, that's how he would teach. To people who are just just looking for some relief from their basic misery of human existence, he would say things like, you know, I'm, you know, obviously this is a gross paraphrasing, but he would say something like, if you're generous, you'll go to heaven. If you stop harming living beings, you go to heaven. You have a good future. That's what he would teach people. Because it was practical to teach that. It was effective. People would do that, and their life you know, would settle down, and then they'd be interested in other things the Buddha had to say. And then he'd teach them about karma. And then when they, when they really heard that, could apply that, benefited from that, then he would point out how when the deepest happiness comes from renunciation, especially the renunciation of attachment and identification. That's the deepest happiness. And because they had verified the Buddhist teaching all along, they had a lot of confidence. So then they would practice what the Buddha taught, even though we don't know what it means to live free of attachment and identification, right? That's like an unknown land. It's like somebody coming and saying, you know, there's this, you go across Lake Elysian and there's this paradise. <laughs> really? I'm going, right, <laughs> sure. So, but if everything I'd said up to this point were truthful and you had verified it in your own experience, you might be, at least, you wouldn't know if it were true, but you might be willing to take a boat across just to find out. And this is, uh, you know, what leads to the, the effort. It's nice to hear from people about, you know, just basic examples how people have applied themselves. They've been inspired, they've been verified, and then they really, uh, what the Buddha, the way it was translated in the sutta that I read, striving, that this, this wholehearted integration commitment to the, what the teaching is. That's, that's what we're missing. And I'm sure you noticed that, like, in our practice on retreat, we get this resolve, okay, I'm going to be with the breath, or 
really going to land here in the walking practice. But then, you know, even though we were really resolved, ten seconds later, you know, we're thinking about that lunch we had, or, you know, why is that person wearing that? Or, <laughs> why is the wind blowing so hard this morning? And now, later in the afternoon, why isn't the wind blowing? <laughs> And it's just amazing. So it's like the persistence of that commitment. That's where we are most of the time is that, that commitment wavers. It's like it's really strong in moments. And then t- two minutes later, it's nowhere to be found. We don't even know why we're here. You know, and then it comes back. So when we have that big commitment, it's like really great to see what happens to people. I'll read a little bit more from Jaya Saro's article, Ajahn Jaya Saro's article. It's common among Buddhist practitioners, however, to realize that the profound trust and confidence in the truth of the Buddhist teachings is not matched by faith in their own capacity to realize that truth. This lack of faith in our potential for enlightenment is crippling and unwise. The doubt is based on a mistaken way of looking at ourselves. Now, isn't this true? So if we had a couple of those moments where we felt a big commitment and then it disappeared, we can really begin to doubt whether, even though we might have a lot of faith, but this makes sense, we may think, but it's not for me. My mind's too easily distracted, or I've got too much pain in my body, or I have, you know, too much going on in my life, too much I have to deal with in my life. So there's a mis- we we basically are getting confused by our conditioning. So this is where it's really good to remember Gulimala or Mogalana, you know, who was Satan 37 lifetimes. <laughs> Or Gulimala, who in that lifetime had killed 999 people and was just about to kill his mother. <laughs> and that even with all of that kind of negative uh, karma, these people were able to, to realize freedom. So maybe we don't know. You know, maybe this is a good place for humility. Maybe we don't know whether we're not good enough. And so he explains how we have this misperception. This lack of faith in our potential for enlightenment, uh, I'm sorry, the doubt is based on a mistaken way of looking at ourselves. Swallowing the myth of the independent I gives us spiritual indigestion. We can't force ourselves to have faith, and we don't need to. We merely have to remove the wrong thinking that prevents faith from arising and start paying more attention to our experience. And then a little later, he goes on. Our discouragement in the practice frequently comes from trying to imagine how this limited I could possibly realize the unlimited. How could this boundless self, this bounded self, realize the unlimited? How could this, I'm sorry, how could this bounded self realize the unbounded? Having posed the question based on a false premise, that the I is real, we naturally conclude with a false answer that my realizing Nibbana can never happen. In other words, how can little old me ever realize something so marvelous? 
The gap seems too wide. Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? This person doesn't realize the truth. Rather, it's through understanding this person, what this person is, that the truth is revealed. This realization involves, in the words of the Buddha, upturning something that has been overturned. It is a shining of light in the darkness. Nothing new is created. What occurs is a radical reappreciation of experience and recognition of something that has always existed. The deathless element is also a birthless element. It is not something that is brought into existence. Instead, those things which conceal or envelop it are removed. If we can grasp this point, then we can feel a new surge of energy. We can see that any sense of inadequacy we might feel is founded on attachment to the conventional self as being ultimately real. Let me say that again. We can see that any sense of inadequacy we might feel is founded on attachment to the conventional self as being ultimately real. At this point, our effort and energy, our persistence in practice is greatly strengthened, and the nagging doubt about our capacity to follow the path to its end may even disappear in a flash. We start to give what it takes. Isn't that a nice teaching? And this is the, this is, we come up against this delusion all the time. And one of the telltale signs is, it seems so believable. I mean, there's very few thoughts we believe more than our thoughts about our inadequacy, our limitations. I mean, for most of us, that's true. Most of us, somewhere in our psyche, have a, a place where we feel a lot of shame or a lot of inadequacy, a lot of limitation. And we take that as self. And we're so convinced that that's me. We're so convinced it's me that a lot of us, you know, really want to hide that place. But if, it, if it's not me, we don't need to hide it, do we? So if you're really hiding it, if you're afraid to sort of put that laundry out, then you, you can assume you're taking it to be self. He ends, he ends his article by telling this beautiful story of, of uh, a time he was a young man. Again, he started really young. I think he was 20 years old. And he had been practicing meditation in India. And uh, he ran out of money, so he had to come back. I think he's English. Is he English, Benny? And uh, he had to come back to earn some money. And I guess wherever he was staying, he, he had to take a bus through a, a desert in India. And for hours and hours in the evening, he just saw rocks and stones. And then it was nighttime, and it rained a little. And when he woke up, he looked out, and the desert, all the flowers had come into bloom. And he hadn't even seen that there were plants in the desert before. And you know how that is if you've ever lived in a desert. It's A lot of the plants are just waiting for a burst of water. And then they take advantage of it, and they very quickly come into full bloom so that they can complete their cycle before they run out of water. And uh, it just it really turned his heart all around because he was feeling so despondent, like he was about to really get somewhere in his practice. And then it fell apart. And this, I'll just end the evening with this 
section from Sharon's book at the end of her book where she's talking about her Tibetan teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, and uh, he's a well-known teacher, and he recently, in this story at this time, had died, and she was pretty crushed. And she was really hoping before he died that he would give her something, you know, that she could take with her. And she, she says, uh, he left me only with myself, and it didn't seem to be enough. <laughs> and a, a few months later, she was doing a retreat, and someone told her, I think she was in Nepal doing a retreat, and uh, someone told her about a beautiful rainbow over the hill. So she kind of ran up to the hill to see this rainbow, and in Tibetan Buddhism, the rainbow is a symbol, it's a placeholder for the nature of the mind because it's beautiful, it's effervescent, right? It's luminous, so it has those kind of qualities. And uh, so she ran up, and she's having this sort of exalted mystical experience. Um, and she has, has this sort of intuition, what her teacher is saying to her about this grief she's feeling, or this loss, or this dependence on her teacher who's died. And, and she hears her teacher say, your experiences will always change, will go up and down. But what is of innate value in you lies in your love and awareness. And a little later, she ends this book with these paragraphs. Emptiness is the Buddhist term for the insubstantiality of our experiences as they arise and pass away. Standing at the top of the hill, I could begin to realize the truth about my attachment to Kempo. I knew that he would tell me, like the teacher in the story, that its nature was insubstantial, unsubstantial, and like all experiences, it would pass away. I knew that, like the thief in the story, if I'm good at sadness and regret, if I'm good at anxiety, then I can use those things for greater understanding. If I'm good at self-doubt, thinking I'm not going to say this right or I should be handling this better, then this doubt too can be seen like any painful state as a bird flying through the sky of awareness. So she's talking here about our basic practice that they talk a lot about in Tibetan Buddhism, but we do too in Theravada Buddhism, which is using dukkha to realize freedom. In Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about Alchemy. They use the concept of alchemy where we transmute a feeling of being, you know, caught in self-centered fear or self-centered doubt or self-centered craving, and we transmute that into to liberation. So that the doubt just is a bird flying through the sky of awareness, as she says here. With faith in the power of awareness, I would be able to see my whole tangle of turbulent, painful emotions for what they were, changing, moving, effervescent. They didn't have to lead me into greater hopelessness or anger or fear. I could be aware of them without getting caught by them. Instead of locating myself in the grief or the sadness or the regret, I could locate myself in the awareness of them. And then she says later, the Buddha nature within us is what makes abiding faith in ourselves authentic. 
not a pipe dream or an aimless fantasy. It is because we all have Buddha nature that the Buddha story, that the Buddha story of life can be our own. And one of the phrases I like from Sharon, uh, from one of her talks, is, "Suffering isn't redemptive. You know, having an experience of pain doesn't educate us. It's just an experience of suffering. But opening to suffering is redemptive. So it's we." Sometimes, especially in Theravada Buddhism, there seems to be an overemphasis on dukkha. But the emphasis on dukkha is really an emphasis on opening to dukkha. Because it's the opening to dukkha that's redemptive, that leads to freedom or insight. Dukkha is just dukkha. You know, human misery is human misery. But changing our relationship to misery leads to freedom. If we don't change our relationship to our suffering, we just keep getting what we've always gotten from life. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.